if we're going to be able to honor you with our lives, Father, if we're going to be able to honor you by hearing from your word, Lord, we desperately need you, Father, for this to us, Father. Time's been in your word. We desperately need you. God, so we pray you give us grace that you speak to us, Father, that you'd help us to hear from you with humble hearts. Father, we pray you would remove anything from our minds or our hearts that would get in the way of us worshiping you as we listen to your word, Father. God, we pray you'd remove anything that would make us want to apply your word to somebody else before ourselves. Father, we pray you'd remove any pride in our hearts, Father. Anything that we've decided we don't want to let you touch. And God, we pray that as we do that, you would make us more like you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Why don't you stand and we're going to read the text. Stand with me. We're going to read from 3 John. I'm going to read. This is God's word. The elder. To my dear friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Dear friend, I pray that you are prospering in every way and in good health, just as your whole life is going well. For I was very glad when fellow believers came and testified to your fidelity to the truth, how you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than this, to hear that my children are walking in truth. Dear friend, you are acting faithfully in whatever you do for the brothers and sisters, especially when they are strangers. They have testified to your love before the church. You'll do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, since they set out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from pagans. Therefore, we ought to support such people so that we can be co-workers with the truth. I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have first place among them, does not receive our authority. This is why if I come, I will remind him of the works he's doing, slandering us with malicious words. And he's not satisfied with that. He not only refuses to welcome fellow believers, but he even stops those who want to do so and expels them from the church. Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. Everyone speaks well of Demetrius, even the truth itself. And we also speak well of him, and you know that our testimony is true. I have many things to write you, but I don't want to write to you with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace to you. The friends send you greetings. Greet the friends by name. That's God's word. You can take your seats. I wonder if you've ever noticed uh, that competition ruins everything. I wonder if you've ever noticed that competition can ruin Everything. Something could be really good and enjoyable and helpful, and then when it gets competitive, it goes south. I have some friends in this very room who are so competitive that they can't enjoy things. Pastor John had (laughs) the gall last week to refer to people who ruin games by being all about the rules and no fun. I'm like, you're talking about yourself even now. Um... Competition can ruin everything. Competition is great uh, when the goal game is winning. So if you're just playing a, a pickup basketball game, competition is fine. If you're just playing a board game, it's fine, though even that can go bad. But in other contexts, when 
the goal is more than just winning when something else is at stake, competition can really just distract you from what the real goal is. So, for example, I see this with my kids. Uh, kids have an amazing ability to turn any and everything into some kind of competition. Uh, stuff that if you were to win, it's so meaningless that I don't even know why you'd be excited. You know, who, who eats dinner faster? Who is quieter at nap time? The answer is neither of you are quiet. Uh, just turning any and everything. If they see another one, you know, if my daughter sees my son getting in trouble, she'll be like, I didn't do that. And just to make sure you know she's the good kid, they'll turn anything into competition. Or a more serious example, you know, the way we'll uh, look at friends, maybe their social medias, maybe what's going on in their life, and we'll compare ourselves to them. And as we compare ourselves to them, we can't just see what they're doing and rejoice with them. We kind of make up these little tournaments in our head, and we try to figure out who's winning. And obviously that doesn't help. It just produces insecurity and bitterness. And what it does is, like I said, it distracts us from the goal. It takes our eyes off of loving them because we're trying to have a competition with them. So maybe an even uh, more precise way to say that is competition poisons everything. Where something could be good and competition just kind of makes it all bad. A, a competition is like a cancer that spreads to every corner of your heart and kills off any love that's present. Where instead of trying to love somebody, you try to beat them. Because think about this. If, uh, if love is a holy affection for someone and a selfless commitment to their good, if love means you're working towards somebody else's good, how could you be committed to the good of somebody else if your main goal is beating them at something? Right? Uh, I can't, I can't want to beat you and want your good at the same time. There's something about competition that's at odds with love. But here's the interesting thing. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed this. All of us are really natural competitors. We always want to be first. We're by nature just kind of conceited and self-interested. Here's an example that I observe in myself and others. Even just yesterday, I was driving home from South Carolina. And you know when you're on the, the freeway and somebody is behind you and then they change lanes to get around you? And you're like, I'm not going to let you get around me. I was going a fine speed. So you want to speed up and not let them in, but you don't want to speed up so they know you're doing that. You just want to speed up just a little bit, just so they don't have enough space. And then you don't let them in, and now you're going like 90 just to stay in front of them. And you forgot, oh, my goal was to get my family home safely. You think you're a NASCAR driver now. We just have this thing in our heart that just always wants to be first. Kids aren't the only ones that turn everything into a competition. And, and here's the thing that, that makes it really a problem. Even though competition makes for a messy community, God has called us to be in community with each other. All right? He's called us to be part of a family. So if you were just to look at us on paper, the local church sounds like a disaster. A bunch of sinners who God saved, but they're still sinners, who will be tempted to compete with each other instead of care for each other and need to walk together for as long as they live. That sounds like it could be a disaster. Um, and so the question is, what are we supposed to do? I mean, there has to be some kind of way to keep from being so dysfunctional. Before we get there, I just want to ask this why question. Why are we like that? Why are we natural competitors? What is it, you know, in our hearts that really wants that priority? 
We like being first. We like having power. And so we don't like when someone else seems superior to us or someone has something we don't. And so we want to fix it by competing so we can win. And so we'll talk about why we do that. But the way John talks about this competition is like it's an enemy to true community. Like it's an enemy to the kind of family life that we want, that conceit and that selfish posture. So we need an alternative way. We need a different way to interact with each other than the ways we'll be tempted to, competing with each other, trying to be first so that we can actually have the kind of family Jesus has called us to. We need to look to Jesus. We need some examples, and I think that we'll get some examples in this text here in 3 John so that we can walk in truth and walk in love like we talked about last week. Remember John last week talked about truth and love not being in competition with each other but things that that help each other. Well, Well, in this letter, 3 John, he's still talking about that truth and that love. So we're looking at 3 John. I'll give you a little background. It's written by the Apostle John, one of Jesus' close friends, um, the same John who wrote the Gospel of John and wrote Revelation, and he's writing this letter. So here's where this is unique within the New Testament. Most of the New Testament letters we have, they're written to churches. They're written to whole congregations. One of the things that's unique about this is this is John writing a letter to a person, Gaius. He's written this to his friend, Gaius. We don't, we don't know exactly who he is. He seems like he's a leader in this particular church. And what uh, John is saying is, I wrote a letter already, and there's been some issues with how that's been received, so I'm now writing you this personal letter. It's as if he's writing the guys to say, here's some of the issues, and here's how I want you to deal with it, how I want you to move forward. And we get to peek in on Paul's kind of personal correspondence. That's cool. We get to, we get to see what he's writing to his friend, and, and it's going to give us some context for what to do. We're not just listening to a conversation, because even though Paul's writing to a person, He's still writing to him about church life, about community life, about how Christians should live together. So I think it'll be easy for us to see how we should respond to it. And we'll start to walk through the letter a little bit. And here's the main thing I think we're going to see in this, that walking in truth means caring, not competing. Walking in truth means caring, not competing. And so we'll get to hear the examples of three men, Gaius, Diotrephes, and Demetrius, right? So we'll start with the, with the caring example of Gaius. It's the first example that we get, and I'm going to read again, starting at verse 1. It says, The elder, that's Paul, to my dear friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Dear friend, I pray you're prospering in every way and in good health, just as your whole life is going well. Just pause real quick. This is just kind of the regular greeting uh, that he would give in a letter. He's hoping he's doing well. Verse 3. For I was very glad when fellow believers came and testified to your fidelity to the truth, how you're walking in truth. I have no greater joy than this to hear that my children are walking in truth. Clearly, truth is important. Doing well. Y'all remember when we went through 1 Thessalonians and Paul starts out by just saying, hey, I'm, I'm happy to hear how the gospel's bearing fruit in your life. This is what John is saying. Guy, it's, it's great to hear how things are going. It's clear that the gospel is at work. The truth is at work. And, and John says it's his greatest joy to hear that he's walking in the truth, because the truth is not just something to be agreed on or something to be recited. It's something to be walked in, right? So when we talk about truth here, we're not just talking about some facts. We mean gospel truth, God's truth, and more than any other kind of truth, gospel truth makes demands of your life. Gospel truth is not the kind of truth that you just hear. Two plus two equals four. That's a true statement. It does not make any drastic demands of your life. 
Gospel truth is a different kind of truth. It's not just a fact that you memorize. You know, we sometimes treat uh, God's truth like it's our favorite song. Like we like it. It's good to hear. It's enjoyable. I may even sing along with it. I might even go to a room where a lot of people like this same truth, and, and that'll be good. Well, that, that's not how God's truth is supposed to be treated, not like your favorite song. Uh, listening to God's truth is more like asking someone what you should do and then waiting to hear the instructions. We're listening purposefully to know how we should respond to it. Right? When we hear God's truth, it makes demands of our life, and we're supposed to walk in it. So if, if your posture towards God's truth is I just want to listen to it and even celebrate it and even recite it, but I don't want to walk in it, then I want to say you're not actually receiving God's truth in the way that we're meant to. Right? This is in James 1 where he says we don't want to be just hearers of the word, deceiving ourselves. We want to be doers of the word. So as he's commending Guy, is he saying you're walking in the truth. That's what brings me joy. Not just that you heard the truth. I knew you heard it. Not just that you liked the truth. I knew you liked it. The way I know it took root is you're walking in it. But what does that walking in the truth actually look like? It looks like caring for each other, not competing with each other. Let me ask you a question before we keep reading in the text. What comes to mind for you when you hear the word hospitality? What comes to mind? Um, For some of us, it may be just someone standing at the door greeting people. When they come into church, it may be when your friends come over, uh, you know, you bring out the good juice. It's like I had some cran apple juice in here for a while. I got you. It may be, you know, welcoming some neighbors in your house, cooking for guests. When the Bible says hospitality, that word literally means love of strangers. Love of strangers. That is a weird concept, to love a stranger, because it kind of seems like a contradiction, right? It seems like love and stranger contradict each other, two words that shouldn't be in the same sentence, because how could you have affection for somebody that you don't know? And what about stranger danger? They didn't read this text. How can you love strangers? The Bible is going to call us all the time to love strangers, to show love to strangers, not just the people that we already know, not just people in our family, not just people that we get along with really well. It's going to call us to love even strangers. Like that Leviticus passage that we read, where God is telling his people, and this was even when he was just working with a specific nation, and he's saying, look, when there are foreigners in the land, you need to eat as yourself. Romans 12, it says, share with the saints in their needs. Pursue hospitality. 1 Timothy 3, where we hear about the qualifications of pastors, It says an overseer must be above reproach, husband of one wife, self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not an excessive drinker, so uh, not a bully, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not greedy. So right in there with he shouldn't be fighting people and getting drunk is he should be hospitable. Right. This is one of the things is at the core of Christian character, hospitality a lover of strangers. And this is one of the things that is unique about Christianity is we're not called to love those we just have a prior connection to. We're called to love people who are complete strangers to us. And especially brothers and sisters in the faith. So what he's talking about here is strangers who are brothers and sisters in Jesus. Uh, Listen to what he says. He's going to talk about how Gaius has done this well. Verse 5, Dear friend, you are acting faithfully in whatever you do for the brothers and sisters 
especially when they are strangers. They have testified to your love before the church. You'll do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, since they set out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from pagans. Therefore, we ought to support such people so we can be co-workers with the truth. This is the posture of somebody who walks in the truth, caring for brothers and sisters, instead of just being self-interested or just looking for ways they can serve him. He's finding ways to serve them. So it seems like in that church there was some like traveling missionaries or some traveling ministers of the gospel who came through. And Gaius, when he sees them, he takes care of them. He supports them. And he took such good care of these people who came through the church that when they get back to where John is, they, they're talking about him. They're raving about him. They're like, man, your boy Gaius, he held us down. They're uh, on Wednesday night prayer. They're just sharing before the church. Like Gaius took care of us. He supported us. He loved us. And John is saying, I was excited to hear that. Because that's you walking in the truth. Now you notice John didn't just say, I was surprised to hear that. I was excited that you just shared some sound doctrine with them. I was excited just to hear that you went to church. He's saying, the way I know you are walking in the truth is the way that you dealt with your brothers and sisters. That hospitality is you walking in the truth. Even though they were strangers to him. This reminds me, um, maybe about six or seven years ago, when I I got invited to uh, do an event in the Cayman Islands. Uh, and so I went one time, and I knew that uh, a preacher named Thabidian Yabwile lived there. Um, and so I reached out to him, and we grabbed coffee, and I was like, we're coming back in a few months, me and my wife are. And he said, oh, that's great. Why don't you come stay with us? I said, what? Good to meet you. My name's Tripp. What? And he said, why don't you come stay with us? So, so we went back to the Cayman Islands, and there was this event. Me and my wife went. We've been married for like a year. And... Um, and Thabiti Anyabwile and his wife, Christy, they welcome us into their home to stay with them for several days. They're cooking for us. They're asking us questions, real in-depth questions about our marriage. They, and the strange thing was, after like a day or two, I felt like I had known them for like five or very... And if you've ever met Thabiti Anyabwile, he's like just a hug incarnate. He's just blown away by the kind of love that they showed him. Gracious person did not... Uh, and. And I was blown away by the kind of love that they showed to me, and they did not know me. They didn't know nothing about me. For the sake of the, they knew I was their brother in Jesus. They knew that I was there for the sake of the name, right? They knew that we had common goals and interests in Jesus. I was a stranger to them, yet I was family, and they treated me like family. This is the kind of hospitality that John is encouraging Gaius and is encouraging us to do as well. Right? They brought us to their church. We shared with their church. They prayed for us. They welcomed us like family because they knew that walking in the truth meant caring for us. That should be our posture towards other Christians. I don't have to know you or a lot about you, but I know you're my brother, sister, in Jesus. Here's a, here's a question for you. Do you love Christians? I don't, don't just think about the Christians you know good. Do you love Christians? Like when Christians come to mind for you, what, what comes to mind first? Is it affection? Is it annoyance? What comes to mind? Because if there's not some affection there, then we should check our hearts some. Not because we're not called to love all our neighbors as ourselves. We are. But there's a special family affection uh, that should be there. A lot of us sometimes consider ourselves the cool Christians. Or we're like, we Christians, but we're not like those Christians. 
And so what we'll do is um, maybe we feel like that because we see Christians being foolish or because Christians can be corny, which we can sometimes, or because sometimes the loudest Christians are the ones who are foolish and embarrassing and seem nothing like Jesus. And so when we think Christians, we like, I'm a Christian, but I don't like Christians. Well, we wouldn't say that, but that's kind of how we feel. And, and I want this passage to challenge you because it seems like our default posture for other believers in Jesus should be affection. That's not to say we're not going to have problems with each other. That's not to say we're going to have some stuff to work through. But we do not have the luxury of just writing each other off. The, the interesting thing is what will happen sometimes is some of the loudest people who call themselves Christians will be embarrassing and they will say some stuff that's nothing like Jesus. And what we'll do is we'll let that poison our view of other believers. And when we do that, we're no different than the world. right? The, the world is turned off of Christians because of a few people who don't even represent Jesus well. But those of us who are in the family of Jesus, we can't let that poison our view of the body of Christ. So there may be large sections of our family in Jesus who have some stuff they need to work through. And instead of writing each other off and erasing all affection, we should think about how to walk in truth and love together. We should think about ways we can serve them. If we don't have enough time to be able to talk with them and serve them, we should pray for them. Either way, there should be affection. There is an immediate family thing that should happen with other believers in Jesus, even if they're strangers, like he says right here in this text. For Gaius, there's this immediate posture of love, not suspicion. He's not assuming the worst. He just knows their family, and he knows they're ministers of the gospel of Jesus. So that's part of uh, what's, what's behind the love, because it says, they've testified uh, to your love before the church. You'll do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, since they set out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from from pagans, set out for the sake of the name. That's just they went out for the sake of Jesus. They wanted more people to know Jesus. They wanted the name of Jesus to be glorified in lots of places. And so in this time, it's a little different than now. If, if somebody was going around preaching the gospel and they were in a place and there was no one to be hospitable, well, they don't get to eat or they don't have anywhere to stay and they probably won't survive very long. So hospitality was a little bit more of an urgent matter. But what you still have is you still have Christians who are welcoming some random people they don't know into their home, right? Some strangers. And, and, and Gaius has been a model in this. He's been a model for this because he's saying, I want the gospel to go forward too. So I want to support these ministers of the gospel. There should also be that commonality among Christians. that We have a common goal and purpose that Jesus saved us and he's going to use us for the sake of the name. The name of Jesus, if I don't have nothing else in common with a believer, we both have been saved for the sake of the name of Jesus. We both have been sent out for the sake of the name of Jesus. We may have some stuff we disagree about. We may have some stuff. We may not be friends if we was in the same place for too long. But we have both been sent out for the sake of the name of Jesus. And that's enough to unify us. And that's enough for affection. I've been purchased by the blood of Jesus. Here's another person who was blood bought and purchased by the blood of Jesus. And if we're going to look at his people the way that he does, if Jesus valued them enough to lay his life down that he could save them, right, if we're going to try to see the world through the eyes of Jesus, then we should have some affection for the people of Jesus whom he gave his life for, whom he saved. 
So sometimes we don't have that affection because we don't have affection for the name of Jesus going forth. If we're honest, there are other things we're just more passionate about, and we find community around that. Maybe our job, we love our job, we love people who are in our field, and when we think about those are my people, I love everybody like this, then it may just be the people who are kind of like you, other artists, other businessmen, other people who work in your field. I want to encourage you to be passionate enough about the name of Jesus that other people who are about the name of Jesus stir up some affection in your heart. So we want to work on that. We, want to, we don't want to neglect that affection for those who live for the sake of the name. And as he's talking about this support, real quick, what he's saying, they won't accept money from pagans. He's just saying people who don't know Jesus, they're trying to work in such a way where they don't have to ask people for money to tell them about Jesus. So he's saying it's good that you supported them because that's helping the name go forth. And there are missionaries that we as a church support who go places, tell people about Jesus, and we support them financially for that reason so they're not trying to ask people for money when they get somewhere. Right? So one of the ways that we get to obey this and to love our brothers and sisters is by giving. Right? So when we give, when we have offering, one of the things we're giving to is the ways that we support other people who are being sent out for the sake of the name of Jesus. Because we want them to be able to have food. We want them to be able to focus on preaching the gospel to people. We want them to be able to give their all towards that. So I want to encourage you. When we give on Sunday morning, I don't want you to think, I don't want you to just kind of mindlessly drop a few cents in. Or if you, got your, uh, you have it set up to just go regularly out of your bank account, I want to encourage you to think really carefully about giving for the sake of the name of Jesus. Right? That, that, that's what we want to do with all of our resources. We want it to be devoted to the spreading and the glory of the name of Jesus. And so when we give as a church, when we come together even for the members meeting to talk about our budget, what we're doing with the money that we give, you should be at the members meeting, what we're doing with the money that we give, we want to be thinking about this, the sake of the name of Jesus. We don't want to buy a building just because we want to own a building. We want to buy a building for the sake of the name of Jesus. We don't want to just support random families, just support random families. We want to send people out to share the name of Jesus. And we want this passion to be in everything that we do. That's one of the ways we obey this is by supporting our brothers and sisters in love. We want to be the kind of welcoming church that supports the work of the gospel. That's why we pray for other churches sometimes brother came up to me last week and was just saying he hadn't heard anybody pray for other local churches in the same area from the pulpit. And I, and I thought, yeah, I hadn't heard that either until I was at a particular church and was struck by the same thing. But when we think about it, it's obvious. We don't we just want our church to go forward. We want the gospel to go forward. And so we want to pray for gospel work in different places. We don't want to have this like us against the world mentality. Jesus has saved lots of people in lots of places. We want the name of Jesus to go forth. We're not in competition. We're on the same team. Walking in truth means caring, not competing. Gaius is the good example. He's the posture we should have, welcoming strangers, caring for each other. But the question has to arise what happens when competition rises up in our heart, when, when competition take root, takes root. What happens to that? We're going to look at the other example, the competitive example of diatrophies. If anybody is with child and they want to name their child diatrophies, I would love to see if you have that kind of courage. 
I don't know what a nickname for that would be. Let's read the example of Diotrephes, verse 9. He says, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have first place among them, does not receive our authority. This is very bold of John. He's, he's coming right out with it. Diotrephes, who loves to have first place among them, does not receive our authority. This is why if I come, I will remind him of the works he's doing, slandering us with malicious words. And he's not satisfied with that. He not only refuses to welcome fellow believers, but he even stops those who want to do so and expels them from the church. There are a lot of things that can cause a messy situation of strife in the life of the church. At the top of the list is pride and conceit. And it seems like that's the, the posture that Diotrephes has. That, that's what's poisoned. That's the, way, that's the reason he's the way that he is, right? So he's probably a well-known member of this church. Uh, if he's in some kind of position to be trying to expel people or keep people, then he might be one of the leaders of the church. And his pride and disobedience is causing lots of issues. Word gets back to John, and so John writes to, to Guy. So he's, the letter he wrote, he's probably talking about Second John. So he's like, I wrote this letter to the whole church. And Diotrephes, who's feeling himself, who wants to be first among everybody, he's rejecting our authority. And, and he goes through all of these issues. And let's just think about the issues that come up because of his pride. Verse 9 says he doesn't receive the apostles' authority. Or another way to say it is he doesn't acknowledge them. He, he's acting like they don't have any authority, like they're not the apostles. He's rejecting their authority because he wants to be first. He wants to control. He's like, don't let these dudes come in from somewhere else trying to write to us about what we should do. He's rejecting their authority because he wants to be first. Verse 10, he slanders them with malicious words. He's using his words to tear them down instead of build them up. Probably talking bad about them to make himself look good. All of us have experience with people who like to talk bad about others to make themselves look good because of his own pride. Verse 10, he refuses to welcome fellow believers. So not like Gaius, who people are coming in and Gaius is welcoming them, treating them like family. Diotrephes is refusing to welcome them. He won't let them in. He's treating family like strangers instead of treating strangers like family. Verse 10, he stops other people from welcoming them. So not only is he not willing to be hospitable like Jesus has called him to, he's stopping other people from obeying Jesus and being hospitable because he wants to be first. Right? He doesn't want other people kind of coming into the mix. He likes it when he kind of has his control and all the attention. Verse 10, he expels other people who want to be hospitable. So not only does he try to prevent them from being hospitable, he's trying to kick people out of the church which, again, is the opposite of welcoming. He's excluding people who want to be welcoming in the way that Jesus has called them to. This dude is a mess, right? So you can see why Paul would want to write about him. He's saying this is a poison in the church, and I think all of it comes from his desire to be first, to be the priority. And that's because competition and pride can ruin everything. Paul in uh, Philippians 2 says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. That's the opposite of diatrophies. He doesn't say, hey, do most things from humility. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Selfish ambition and conceit has no good use. There's no arena of life where selfish ambition and conceit will serve you well. It only deceives you. There's such thing as ambition that's not selfish ambition. 
There's such thing as caring for yourself that doesn't mean you're just self-interested. Paul also says, don't just look out for yourself but for the interests of others. Somebody might say, okay, what's the big deal about wanting to be first? Maybe he's just really confident. Why can't we want to be first and want other people's good at the same time? And here's why. When we're so obsessed with competition and being first, we stop seeing people as opportunities for us to serve and to love them, people made in the image of God, and we start to see everything as a threat to our priority and power. Right? So... You know, the authority of John, he's rejecting it because he sees that as a threat to his own authority in the church. Welcoming other people in. He sees that as a threat to whatever kind of relationships he has. And that's what we do. We start to turn everything into a threat. That's why when we compare ourselves to people and they seem to be doing better than us, we end up getting bitter. Because we see it as somehow a threat to what we're doing. You know, when have you ever seen somebody in the middle of a race running and looks to the side like, you're doing good, bro, keep going. Rejoicing with it. That's not what you do. I can't be concerned about you and how good you're doing because I need to run my race. I want you to trip and fall and get injured so that I can get to the finish line first. That's how competition works. When we're trying to be first, everyone's a threat to us. We can't be excited about anyone's good. We can't rejoice with anybody. We can't serve anybody. We can't love anybody. When, when we turn everything into a competition, we turn, you know, our community into a stage we perform on where we can gather more authority and people like us more. And we turn the whole world around us and it's not our mission field, it's our personal platform where people can see how great I am. Selfish ambition, conceit, pride, competition, it kills love. It chokes love out of your heart. And Diotrephes is a good example of it. Competition also means I'm not okay with having something myself. I want more than everybody else. C.S. Lewis has this quote. I know John quoted C.S. Lewis like four times last week. But there's a reason we passed it together. Uh, Quote on the screen. It says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something. Only out of having more of it than the next man. We say people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking. But they're not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. And that's, that's what pride does is it always has to turn into competition. You can't rejoice with others when you're only thinking about yourself. So conceit looks at everybody's competition instead of family. You know one thing that can kill this competitive spirit in us is the very thing we supposedly celebrated last week on Thursday, Thanksgiving. Gratitude in our heart can really cut the legs out from under that competitive spirit. Because what happens when we realize that everything we have is a gift from Jesus, is we stop trying to say, but I got more gifts from Jesus. When we we understand these are gifts from God, it's not something for us to take pride in. It's not something for us to use to amass more just glory for ourselves. God gives us gifts for his own glory and for our good. When we understand everything is a gift from God, it makes it harder to be mad about the ways that God has blessed other people makes it a lot harder to do that when you think about everything you have as a gift from God. That, that thanksgiving kind of kills that entitlement and helps us to, to not try to be so competitive. Walking in the truth means caring for each other, not competing with each other. Gaius was a good example. Diotrephes was the bad example. I want to read verse 11. This, this is how he kind of concludes this conversation. He says, dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. 
So he's saying, you have these two examples. You have Gaius, you have Diotrephes. He's saying, don't imitate Diotrephes. He's not just saying that was not a good idea. He's saying that's evil. He's saying you should imitate what's good. He doesn't say don't imitate people. Part of following Jesus is imitating. Part of your maturity in Jesus is not you just going off in a corner and just growing by yourself. Part of your maturity in Jesus is looking for people who look like him and imitating them. Uh, That's how I want to encourage you to... Uh, sometimes we think of our closest friends just by who we get along with best, just whose music we, we all like the same music, we like the same clothes, we like to watch basketball. I'd also like to encourage you to think about who you hang with most based on who looks most like Jesus. Who do you want to rub off on you? Like when you hang out with somebody, who, who's the person who you hang out with and you always leave encouraged? Who's the person you hang out with where you leave thinking about things a little more clearly or you leave a little more joyful? Those are the kind of people you want to rub off on you. Those are the kind of people you want to imitate. We will imitate people. I know we like to think we're original. We don't do nothing like nobody else. I'm me. Ain't nobody like me. Well, you just copied your unique amount of people, right? We, we all imitate. He's saying imitate what's good. So sometimes when it's a competition, what we'll do is we'll see somebody who's like, man, I seen him share guys with three people this week. That is amazing. I'm about to share with four. Instead of saying, man, I want to be more like that. I want to imitate them. Uh, I want to be more like Jesus in the ways that they are. He says, imitate what's good, not what's evil. That's what it means for us to walk in the truth. Um, One of the things this means for us, if we're going to imitate what's good, like guides, we're going to be hospitable. One of the things that we have to be careful of, especially in a new church, and a new community, and our relationships with each other is cliques, right? There's some ways we, we wouldn't think of just like shunning people or someone we haven't seen before. I ain't seen you before. You need to get out. We're not going to do that like Diotrephes did. But there may be some other ways where we don't really like strangers of any sort. We don't really like people who don't usually hang with us kind of in our clique. And what happens with cliques, the reason we do that sometimes, we feel the need to exclude people because we really like what we got. You ever just been in a situation where you're like, I like us four hanging out. And I say something funny than he does, and he's, he's kind of the dumb friend, like, like Cole. And then he, you know, and we kind of like the mix of friends we have. And then someone else comes up and it's like, you know, we've had those feelings. And what we can be tempted to do is, within the family of God, say, I do not want to let anybody else ever hang out with us because I like what we got. And what that is, is a competitive spirit. Instead of caring for others and thinking about how to serve them, you're thinking, I don't want you to mess up what I have. I don't want you to mess up my position within this group. Or sometimes we don't. We like the amount of time we spend with our friends. Like, you're like, man, I always hang out with this person this many days a week. If they're cool with them, then I'm going to have to share them. And we wouldn't say that to the person because it sounds creepy, but we think that way. Or we see somebody hanging with somebody else and we're like, dang, you don't laugh like that when I tell my jokes. And that is okay. That's just a part of life. It's part of friendships. But what I want to encourage you towards is welcoming of strangers, especially as more believers come into the life of our church. We cannot just try to keep our tight circle of friends in a way that excludes people. We want people to feel welcomed. We want to treat them like family. We don't want them to feel like stepsons and stepdaughters. We don't want them to feel like outsiders. We want to make sure everyone feels welcome. And so that means sometimes 
giving up some of the comfort of our perfect little friend group sometimes. That means inviting other people into what we're doing for the sake of caring for others. Caring for other people. That's one of the ways that I think we can imitate what's good. And then he's going to talk about Demetrius. That's the last thing he's going to talk about. He says, everyone speaks well of Demetrius, even the truth itself. We also speak well of him, and you know that our testimony is true. I bet you thought black people made that name up. Nope, it's a Greek name, Demetrius. And Demetrius... <laughs> Demetrius is different than Diotrephes, right? So he's giving us Gaius, Diotrephes, and now Demetrius, and he's saying everyone speaks well of him. He says even the truth speaks well of him. We speak well of him. This is what happens when we walk in the truth. People speak well of us. They have good things to say about us. They say, I was around him, and instead of excluding me from their friend group, they welcomed me. Some of the most encouraging stuff that I get to hear sometimes, someone say, I visited your church, and everybody was so kind and welcoming. That's an encouragement to me. Right? We want people to speak well of us as a community and as individuals. That's what happens when we walk in the truth, generally. Now, of course, sometimes people are just going to be mad at you just because. But we want to live the kinds of life where we're spoken well of, where we have a good reputation, not just for the sake of seeming nice, but for the glory of Jesus. Like, this is what happens when somebody gets a hold of Jesus. This person is kind, and they're loving, and I saw them mess up and then repent for the way that they messed up. Right there, we, we want people to speak well of us. He says, even the truth speaks well of Demetrius. That means if you read the truth of God and you see what someone's supposed to live like, you're even more impressed with Demetrius because he looks like this. Have you ever read something in Scripture and you're like, man, that sounds like this person? That's the kind of people we, we want to pray that the Lord would make us more and more like. We want to imitate what's good, these good examples. Walking in the truth means caring for each other, not competing with each other. And here's our main motivation for this hospitality, caring for each other, loving each other, welcoming each other. It's not some foreign concept that we've never heard of before, we've never experienced. Jesus is the ultimate example of hospitality. Jesus is the ultimate example of walk, uh, welcoming us in, and that's why we do it. Even Romans 15 says, therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted you to the glory of God. Uh, Jesus accepted us into his family. So if you're here today, you're not sure if you're a Christian, or you, you don't follow Jesus, or you don't know if you want to, there is a beautiful truth of the good news that God is willing to welcome any of us, not just around his house, not somewhere near him, not just to be around him every now and then, but into his family. That God is willing to welcome us. Some of us may say, I feel really far from God. I am a stranger to God. Well, I want you to know God is a welcomer of strangers. God is a lover of strangers. That's the only kind of person there is. All of us are far from God. God welcomes us to himself through what Christ has done. So that we were far from God, the whole world, and God in his grace sent his son Jesus to come near to us. When we couldn't come near to him, Jesus came and sought us. Jesus didn't just answer the door when some strangers knocked. He went out and got them. When all of us were running away from Jesus, Jesus put on human flesh and he came and got us. That's the good news of Jesus. And any of us can be in his family. And that should motivate us, that we should have been left outside the family of God. But Jesus died and he welcomed us in his family. 
right, that we should have been hopeless, but Jesus died and he gave us eternal hope. Right, that even if we were born rich, we were spiritually poor, but Jesus died and he gave us eternal riches. That we should have had to fend for ourselves, but Jesus came and died and fought our battle for us. That we should have been turned away, but Jesus died and turned us around and told us to come in. That we should have been declared guilty, but Jesus died and took our guilt and declared us not guilty. Jesus is the ultimate example of hospitality, and this is what should motivate us. This is what we celebrate. So that as we look at how glorious and welcoming Jesus is, we should say, I want to be like that. I know what it's like to be welcomed when I was a stranger. I want to do the same thing for others. What a beautiful opportunity to show people a little picture of what Jesus is like. Jesus is the ultimate example of this. Right? The walking in the truth means caring, not competing. And now that Jesus has brought us into his family, we, we get to not have such a mess of a dysfunctional family. We get to grow to where we look more and more like him. There are surely some ways that we need to grow in looking more like a caring community than a competitive community. The good news is we have Jesus on our side. The good news is we have his spirit behind us so that we can be a community that loves and cares for each other. That we can be a community that doesn't just seek our own interests but the interests of one another. That we can be the kind of community that looks like Jesus. That the truth could even speak well of us. We should imitate what's good, not what's evil. I'm encouraged to hear of people being welcomed in each other's homes for Thanksgiving, especially when you don't even know if someone can cook or not, and you still go. It's hospitality on both sides and strangeness on both sides, you know. We want to be the kind of church where we're always in each other's homes, right? We want to always be among each other, welcoming each other. We want that to be our posture as welcomers and lovers of one another because walking in the truth means caring, not competing. Competition ruins everything. It's impossible for us to be a loving community. But as the scripture says, uh, as the scripture says, all things are possible with God, right? And where there are things that we would ruin by our sin, Jesus can redeem by his death and resurrection. And that's really good news for us. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and Jesus name father and we thank you so much for what you've done for us in your son Jesus uh, Father we thank you for speaking to us in your word and telling us what you would have us live like father uh, God we thank you that we don't even have to imagine what it would be like Lord But you've given us the example of what it means to care uh, Father so we pray that we would love one another like you've loved us father and we pray we would reflect well upon you Father I pray for any friends who don't know Jesus Lord that you would show them what he's like father even as we get to watch a baptism, that we think about the reality that Jesus will raise us from the dead and welcome us into his family. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.